everything that we now do was once impossible, so nothing is impossible. So you push and you push and you push the boundaries. And in this century, I think we're going to prove that. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Today's a really special coffee pod for me because it's one I've shared with one of my earliest mentors, the incredible Peter Fitzpatrick AM. Peter is a widely respected and recognised individual, uh, both for his distinguished 20-year military career, including service with the Elite Special Air Service as an Australian Army officer, and secondly, as his role as a chief executive for both the legal profession and the motor trade industry. Uh, I should add, probably one of the things that I most deeply admire about Peter is the incredible contribution he's made to community. He has been involved over and over again in starting, chairing, leading all sorts of non-profit organisations. And as we'll come through in our conversation, his passion for our veterans and mental health is particularly strong. He's been made an, a member of the Order of Australia in the Queen's Birthday Honour List. He was also a finalist for Senior Australian of the Year. Peter spent more than 20 years mentoring CEOs and helping them to improve the way that they lead. And this is a podcast rich in practical advice, lessons and suggestions that can help you to be the most effective, fulfilled individual you possibly can in both your professional and your personal life. I can't recommend it to you more highly. And I hope you thoroughly enjoy this coffee pod with Peter Fitzpatrick. Peter Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. This is a very special coffee pod for me because you were one of my earliest mentors when I first started uh, my own business career and, and so much of the the guidance and the grounding that you gave me. I talk about this regularly. I don't think just help me in business, but help me uh, frame my thinking about the person that I wanted to be too. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But I wanted to know, I mean, you're someone who's had a distinguished military career. You've uh, been a, a CEO for, for many years and led to professional industry bodies. You've coached and mentored executives. But I kind of wanted to start back with with where, where your thinking around leadership really developed. Where did you kind of distill and start to see what it is that you believe makes a great leader? Yeah, I think it goes a long way back. Uh, back to my early days as a young lieutenant with the Special Air Service. Um, and when I was quite young, suddenly finding myself in command of troops in a war zone. So, uh, and not many people get put through that sort of experience in their sort of early 20s. Um, and it's uh, it's quite an awesome responsibility to have that. And I think the basis of everything that I've ever done, uh, and I, I see it as the cornerstone of all leadership, is to be, first of all, aware of your own strengths and weaknesses. And uh, the SAS certainly tests your physical strength and a lot of your mental strength. So knowing your physical and mental limitations is very important. And I can say for most people when they say they're tired or they're exhausted or whatever, they're only a fraction of the way there. You know, I've seen how far you can actually push your body and your mind. And most of it's about your mind, you know. The SAS selection course was just brutal, but 
if you worried about what you were doing physically, you'd never get through. You just got to set your mind on a course to say, I've just got to go through this process. And, and you tough it out in your mind. So I think knowing yourself is a starting point, but linked to that also is emotional intelligence. I've taught leadership at the highest levels of the military, at their staff colleges and so on. And people used to say, you know, a leader's born or made. And I used to say, look, there are some people who are more predisposed to being better leaders than others. But the thing to me you can't teach is emotional intelligence. Do you deeply care for your people? Do you deeply care for those you're leading? Uh, are you committed to making sure that you know all about them and what makes them tick? And I think that to me is the starting point. So knowing yourself and then deeply engaging yourself with your people is really important. And once you really understand how they tick, you can become so much more effective in your own role. And a lot of it in big business and that, it's leadership by walking around. Mm. You know, Storming at the back of the, of the warehouse is just as important to the business sometimes as an executive sitting in the front office. So as the CEO of large industry and professional associations, I should spend a lot of time out talking to my people. You have to really empathise and know how those people think and to be able to help them and to, to guide them through where you think they need to go. I love that piece around getting to know yourself and I can imagine the intensity with which that would have happened in military training. Yeah. For those, because I think quite often people make that statement around it's really important to know yourself and people go, yeah, but what does that mean? How do, how do I do that? You know, and, and does that have to involve putting myself in environments effectively where I, where I test what I'm made of? Yeah, effectively, it's, a lot, it's all around mental strength. I did two years in a Jesuit monastery at the age of 17 and 18. So it's a bit of a funny shift, isn't it, from being a, living in a monastic life. Just a little. Being in, in Vietnam with the SAS. But it, it, it all occurred over a, a relatively uh, short period of time. The Jesuits taught me at school, and uh, they're the tough nuts uh, of the Catholic Church. And when you went into their monastery in those days, you went back to 1550, to the days of Ignatius of Loyola. So it was 23 hours a day silence. All our communication was in Latin. And when you did speak that, you had, um, when you did, we were taught in Latin. And then just to test our mettle, they came in and taught us ancient Greek one day, but used Latin as the medium of instruction. So they always pushed your boundaries. And the Jesuits have a saying, which was this, everything that we now do was once impossible, so nothing is impossible. I like that. In this century, I think we're going to prove that. You know, we're talking about a century, this current century, advancing 100 years in time. Mm. We will advance 100,000 years in terms of knowledge. We will have computers that will be smarter than all the brains that have ever been before us by the end of this century. Mm. So uh, there's nothing really is impossible. You know, driverless cars, uh, artificial intelligence, big data, cloud computing, all of these things... Uh, I, I remember it's not all that long ago uh, when in my role as a CEO, the internet came along. I remember as a time working as a strategic advisor to John Howard when he was the prime minister and he asked me to do a major research paper on it, dryland salinity, Australian uh, habitat and a few other things. And I'm not an environmentalist. And I had to go and spend time in libraries and talk to people. You do it in a heartbeat now because you just get on the internet and when you think about it, that's 20 years ago. There was no internet. To, there was an internet, but nothing 
that was of any commercial advantage to people. Again, another 80 years is going to be a huge difference, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I'm intrigued. So talk to us, the, the decision to join the military in the first place, what was the motivation there and uh, the journey that you wanted to go on, I guess? Look, I, I think it was all about service. You know, I, I think um, uh, life is about serving others. Human beings are at their best uh, when they're serving others. I, I think if you want a real purpose in life, I think we're here to enrich the world, each and every one of us. Um, and you, you, we do that sometimes one person at a time, sometimes we do it collectively. It depends how fortunate you are to deal with small or large organisations. But a mum working at home enriches the world by the way she, she raises her kids. Um, and she might do it with one or two kids at a time. Um, and, and that way her mission in life and her enrichment of the world is, is quite critical. If you're fortunate enough to be involved as a CEO of a major organisation, well, then you, you've got the potential to do a lot more. You can enrich the world in multiple channels, uh, upwards, downwards, sideways. But I think if you go back to the, the basis of being here, to me it's never been about personal riches or fame. It's all about uh, I would rather be in a position where I was able to influence an outcome that was for the betterment of humankind than necessarily having a big bank account at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Because the people with the big bank accounts, I know most of them around this town, and I can tell you, I'm not all that happy, a lot of them. No, and that was one of the earliest lessons I remember you, you teaching me, was sending me to meet a particular individual who had a one-dimensional view of what success looked like um, so that I could have the learning and the appreciation. I remember the phone call that we had afterwards where you said, what did you think? And I said, oh, to be honest, it made me a little bit sad. Um, and, you know, yes. that conversation that you invited me to, to have with you around, you know, that's why it's so important that you have this overarching sense of purpose and you understand that um, there are many elements of life that you need to have encompassed in your definition of success. Well, see, it'd be an interesting test on your deathbed if someone said, have you enriched the world? Wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm talking about whether you've made money. I'm talking about have you enriched the world? What, what, how have you been able to awaken great spirits in others? Mm. Uh, have you been able to leave behind a legacy of people that will carry on the sort of things that were important to the world and to uh, to humanity generally. It's a really interesting sort of questions that I think you can you can ask from time to time, and they're not a bad touchstone to go back to. Definitely. Sometimes we're saying, should I do this or that? Well, which is the one that is going to have one the most impact and is going to be the best for humanity? Mm. And tell me, um, I, like you kind of glossed over this piece around leading on the battlefield. I think we talk a lot now around resilience and grit and the ability to deal with challenge and difficulty. Leading on the battlefield is is a pressure cooker environment that where you're contending with exactly that. How do you get through very tough situations, loss, grief, challenge, uh, to the extreme? What did you learn yes. in your time in the military around sort of, I guess in a pragmatic sense, how you actually do that? How do you steal your mind? How do you stay focused on the right things? How do you not let the difficulty get the better of you? I think that we had a simple maxim, and it sort of works. If I can sort of, I don't want to be trite about this, but it was train hard, fight easy. Mm-hmm. So if you focus on the little things and get them right, as you get into the bigger things, or as you get into the real situation, it seems to flow a lot better. Um, it's a bit disconcerting to have things flying past you, your head, um, 
that could kill you. Um, but basically, when we get into those situations, it was a, it was largely a drill. You know, this we knew what we had to do, and we would just exercise the drill that we'd practiced many, many, many times. So it, it takes it, it becomes almost instinctive. It's a bit like parachuting. You know, um, some 170 odd parachute jumps and. It's all just instinctive. You, the number of times I got out and things weren't quite right, there were twists or you know, there were thrown rigging lines and these other sort of complications. But if you if you just trained and trained and trained, they wouldn't even let you put a shoot on until you'd done about four weeks of training. And if you're well trained and you've focused on the little things, and everything's the little things, but they're really critical in battle. Mm. So we used to focus on that sort of great detail to get things right. And then when you get into the bigger picture, the detail, the big things take care of themselves by, by knowing how to how to react in certain situations. And in management, what does that mean? Well, in management, that means crisis management. How many companies actually really practice crisis management? Mm-hmm. How many of them, the crisis arrives and then they suddenly, oh, my goodness, isn't that interesting? We should have done something about this before. Uh, and I think a lot of companies are really not good at it. I always laugh when I go to England um, because they get snow there every year. And every time it arrives, all the roads get shut. And as if it's a whole new occurrence. I lived in Germany when I was seconded to the British Army. And the Germans are out at three in the morning with a snowplow, a salt machine. But in England, it's like it's a whole new occurrence every year. I just find that really amusing. The capacity to, to train your people to think about what might happen and how you respond in a crisis is really important. And where do you go? What does the board do? Um, uh, how does management, how do you interact with management when there's a crisis? One of the things that I've come to really appreciate in the time that I've spent with the military in the last few years is both the planning and then the review and the post-mortem afterwards that then informs yep. the better practice and approach next time round. Yes. And I'm interested because I know you do so much mentoring with CEOs and I'm sure you encounter this, but I hear a lot, oh, but we just don't have time. Yes. We're too busy. Yes. How do you combat kind of the challenge that we're so in the business as usual that we don't have time for really the, the drill and we don't have time for the re- they do the review, but the actual revision of that back to inform a better practice, that's probably the bit where the cycle breaks down. Yes. it's um, Well, it's in the business and on the business stuff, isn't it? It the is. People, yeah. And boards, boards are the same. You know, of the boards that I'm chairing that now, I'm saying, can we just lift the game to be strategic here? And I, I think I'd be a rich man if I had a couple of dollars for every strategic planning session I've run for companies. Uh, when I've had to say, can we please go strategic and get out of the operational area here? Yeah. Um, and because people feel more comfortable in the doing rather than the thinking. Mm. And if you think about strategic planning, it's not just doing a plan. It's about thinking, taking time to stop and think, what are the insights that come from that? What is the foresight? What are the things looking forward for our industry or our company? Uh, and then that will then help you to lead towards something like strategic intent. So you go thinking, insight, foresight, intent, rather than just uh, simply sort of rushing from one thing to the other. Too many CEOs run from one little crisis to the other. They don't either trust their, their subordinate people or their middle management, um, or they just want to be seen to be there as part of the part of the crisis or something. They've just got to get out of the way and let people get on and do their job 
and and stay on the bridge, get out of the engine room, uh, if you could use a maritime sort of example. That's where boards need to be, and that's where the CEO has to be a bit of both. The CEO has got to be very much looking forward. What's what's my company, my industry going to look like in five years' time? And I've got a day tomorrow teaching risk and strategy on the company director's course, and these are the sort of boundaries I try and push with people. Don't just think strategic plan, job done, tick, move on. Mm -hmm. But but actually sit down and think and get through that stage of getting to intent. And once you get to intent, then you can look at scenarios. Then you pick your best option. Then you're starting to get towards actually developing a strategic plan. And that's where boards and leaders should be thinking at that sort of level. Um, but they don't get they don't give themselves time to think, let alone worry about foresight, let, mm. let alone worry about strategic intent might be. So, Peter, during your own executive career and as well, I guess, now as a chair, what what does your own personal discipline look like when it comes to that in terms of making sure you've got enough time on thinking about trends, the application of that to the industries of the boards that you chair and the, the companies specifically? How do you kind of do that as a week-to-week or month-to-month habit and where do you go looking for that sort of insight? Do you do you intentionally go and, and travel to certain parts of the world? Are you reading from different sources? How do you kind of live that? I read a lot yeah. um, and, uh, in terms of uh, stuff that's coming through. Anything that's got that, that, that comes through, I subscribe to quite a few things. I read book summaries so I can read you know, half a dozen books a week pretty, pretty easily because they come in. And if it's a really good book, you buy it. And the other thing, I'm always challenging the CEOs. I meet with my CEOs in between board meetings. Um, we have some simple rules that we um, there's no surprises, and we've got one another's backs. But I, I, we also have a, a understanding that we're going to push boundaries mm-hmm. um, to see you know, what. And, and there's one I'm chairing a large charity here that has the, sort of a thousand staff and volunteers. Uh, in uh, operating with the most vulnerable people in, in Western Australia. And there's a high lot of risk there, but we keep pushing boundaries. How can we do this better? What's the new frontier for this stuff? How do we deal with government better? We can do this better than government. Let's show them how, and that sort of thing. Pushing those envelopes. Um, and, and you can only do that by staying informed and reading stuff that, that helps you to think that way. You know, I guess I started with the whole purpose around self-awareness and emotional intelligence. The next thing after that for leaders, I think, is critical is vision. Mm. What's the vision look like? If you can enunciate a clear vision that your people latch onto, then you're a long way down the track. I love that getting to why, the belief statement. What do we believe here? And so what's the vision to take us to that? And I just think that's absolutely critical. You know, the belief statement when I chaired the Ministerial Council for Suicide Prevention here was we believe every life is precious and suicide is preventable. And that drove the whole strategy. Mm. And the vision then was to halve the rate of suicide within a 10-year period. So uh, setting those very clear um, parameters help to define everything else. Mm. Well, I just wanted to touch on the issue of mental health because, you know, fast forward to 2017, 18, it's sort of one of the the dominant issues that we're finding leaders and businesses starting to get their head around in terms of contending with that in the workplace. 
And I just wondered, from your perspective, working on the charitable space with young people in that area, what have you learned and what do you think leaders and chair people and boards need to be thinking about when it comes to the issue of mental health? Um, I think they've really got to look at the culture and engagement of people. How do you engage with you? How do you motivate your people? How do you inspire them? Um, now, mental health will come at you from all different directions, and sometimes it's outside the workplace. Mm-hmm. So people will be in a, in, a, in a workplace, and it won't be caused by the workplace itself. It'll be caused by some domestic or some other issue. Um, so the, I think the first thing is to be able to recognise it. But if you've got a strong culture and you've got a team approach um, where you've got organisations where people don't work for the company or a boss but work for themselves, work for the team, which is where Apple and a lot of these others have created uh, cultures, then I think that really, that, that then provides a framework for actually doing um, a lot better with mental health. To me, it's a real failure of leadership if someone takes their life mm. within a company that you're, you're, you're leading because that means that person didn't feel within that company there was a point in time where they could talk to somebody about their feelings. Mm. Um, whereas in a team where people are, are bonded together and you create these teams, you create great engagement cultures and great culture of people you know, doing something that's bigger than them and makes them feel like they're part of something. Um, the mental health issues in those companies are much lower than in other places. Uh, the engagement rates in Australia are, are still relatively low on average. You know, the Gallup poll that looked at this said we're 16% engagement in work. That's people who love the place, will work for blood, sweat or tears. They love going to work. They love the people they work with. And then there's about 60% of disengaged. In other words, they go to work because it's a job. They go to work because it funds their lifestyle, which is to do other things. And then there's 16% that are actively disengaged. Another cancer in the place, and you know, they drag everyone down. It's pretty alarming, isn't it? That's well, the world is only 13% engagement. Mm. What's the engagement rate like? What's the culture like in the place? Do the people really feel part of something, or are they just there to work for a boss to get their money and get out of there as quickly as they can each time? And in those sort of environments, um, people with mental health issues will always struggle. I chair the National SAS Association and I chair the Bravery Trust, two national boards dealing with veterans, and 80 to 85% go on to live perfectly normal lives and contribute well in the military and in their civilian life afterwards. But there's about 10 to 15 to 20% in that sort of range that, that finish up being badly scarred by their, their military experience. And finding a way forward for them can be really difficult because they leave this wonderful life where they've got all their mates around them. There's a great sense of camaraderie. So inside the military, uh, 18 to about 27, people in the military were half the risk of suicide as their civilian counterparts. But if they left the military not of their own accord, in other words, they were discharged on medical or health or some other grounds, they suddenly went to twice the risk of their civilian counterpart. And a lot of that is points back to what I was saying earlier. It's that camaraderie, that sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves, people having one another's backs. And when they go back out into the community, they 
they, they don't get that sense of that anymore. You know, I think most people, if, in the surveys and the results that I've seen of this in my time at the Ministerial Council, is most employees think mental health is about 90% important. Employers think it's about 40% to 45% important. Mm. So there's a gap between what employers regard as important and what the actual people that they're leading. So that points to another gap, I suppose, that or another important thing in leadership, which is communication. Yeah. So, so we've talked vision and communication is just critical. That ability to talk up and down um, and not through silos is really, really important. Now, the best leaders, I think the guy who used to chair one of the big um, food companies, it might have been Heinz, I can't remember, or uh, um, one of the Campbell's Soups, I think it was, he used to have joggers in his office, and when he finished the meeting, he put his joggers on. Had this massive headquarters covering hectares, and he would just walk around and pop himself down alongside somebody working on a marketing plan and say, "Why are you using those colours and the rest of it?" And then he'd have a bit of a chat, and he'd move on. And then they'd call him back to a meeting. He'd take his joggers off, put his work shoes on, and that was the way he ran his company. And he and another. Uh, a lady wrote a book about this this sort of leadership by being there and present with your people all the time. That sort of environment, you've got a boss that's doing that and they inculcate all that down the line. You shouldn't have too many mental health problems. And if there are problems, they're probably not going to be work-related. They'll be, they'll be driven by factors outside the workplace. And hopefully they'll be picked up on the workplace because the culture and the communication will be powerful enough for people to, to see that. And I wanted to touch on your broader charity work. What do you believe is critical for impactful leadership in the charitable space? Well, I think the, one of the things that I was saying, and I'll come at it from a slightly different direction, I think there are too many charities. And I think there are too many charities drawing down on the, a limited dollar that's available. There's over 600,000 not-for-profits. Of those, there's about 60 to 70,000 charities. But to give you an illustration, there's about 5,000 charities that say they're there to serve veterans. We're working on a program at the moment that's called the Ex-Service Organisation Collaboration, where we try to work together to see who does what and how we can work better together with cross-referring or whatever else it might be. Say, stick to our purpose, stick to what we're good at, and say to the others, this is what we will do well, and we will work with you. We've got to start looking at what are the critical things, what's our clear mission, and what are, who are the people we're trying to help, and just bring it back and do that stuff well. What is it you think that we focus on too much in leadership development conversations, and what is it you don't think we focus on enough? Um, well, I think the self-awareness one that I mentioned, to me, the, the critical parts of leadership are, are the self-awareness, emotional intelligence, vision. Where, where, where's, I don't think we focus. Mm -hmm. The visions I see are most organised are rubbish. You know, they say we're world's best practice. Well, how do you prove that? You know? The best statement I ever heard was John F. Kennedy when he said, in this decade, we'll put a man on the moon and bring him safely back to Earth. It's my favourite. And they did it, didn't they? Yeah, Cape Canaveral. Abraham Lincoln, I'm going yep. to join the states and free the slaves. You know, they're beautiful vision statements that empower a whole range of thinking. I don't think we talk enough about that. And the vision statements that I see are like taglines in many cases, which don't drive behaviour. 
So we don't focus on that enough. All their mini essays. I've read some very verbose mission statements in my time. Yeah, well, and they get mission and vision mixed up and purpose. I think having a strong belief statement, I don't think enough people follow the cynic line of, you know, get your limbic brain working here and get people, you know, if you want people to change their behaviour, you've got to come at them with a belief. And uh, I think that's critical. Mm. Uh, communication, we, te- we tend to tell. We don't tell enough stories to communicate. All great leaders tell stories. Mm. I don't. I think people think that that's a bit soppy or something. I don't know, but... I use stories all the time to bring home a, a lesson or a point. Yeah. The other thing is we don't take action enough. We talk about stuff and don't do it. You know, Robin Sharma, one of my favourite authors on leadership, says the smallest of actions is greater than the noblest of intentions. I love and that. That's great. You actually you do something, you know, do stuff. Um, there's a guy called Antoine de Saint-Exupéry who is a, an aviator and an author. He wrote the, the book The Little Prince, which is like a mm. an adult fairy story. You might have read it at some stage. And I think he gives the best definition of of leadership that a board should follow or CEO should follow that I've ever heard. And it goes something like this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people into work parties or tell them how to collect wood. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I love Isn't that. that amazing? Yeah, that's sensational. So, I'm going to write that down. And I, I'll say to people, what's the endless immensity of the sea for your organisation? What's the big compelling vision and story that sits behind your organisation? And I think we'd sort of do leadership by numbers uh, on, in many courses. University courses, in most cases, blithely ignore leadership. You've got to go and do an MBA or something before you get to see anything on leadership at all. And yet we throw people out the, the front doors of universities with a whole lot of different degrees in engineering, law, architecture, uh, and they've all got to go and lead companies and run organisations, mm. but no one's given them the basics. Uh, and these are these critical things that we're talking about now, you know, self-awareness, vision, leadership, uh, communication, taking action, setting the big picture, um, getting people engaged within your business, uh, none of that stuff, they go out and they learn either the wrong example from their pre- from people who are more senior in their practice or, or they learn the hard way by making mistakes and finding that they, things don't go the way they planned simply because they haven't led people effectively. So I think they're the big sort of ones to me. Courage is a big one too to me. You've got to... I think we need to talk more about courage, and that's not being shot at. You know, that's just a drill, as I said earlier. Courage is being able. There are a number of times I've had to go into a board meeting saying, "Well, I'm going to push this point, but if I can't get it across, I'm just going to have to leave because I'm so sure that I'm on the right track here." For example, I remember one when we had a bullying CEO, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and the chairman could not accept it, the chair at the time. And uh, and I, I as in refused to see it when you when you're talking about that. Yeah, refused to see it. And so I did my preparation on it, and and I spoke to past employees and other people to to make sure that what I was seeing was what I was seeing. I didn't just go in on a wing and a prayer. And I, I marshaled quite a body of thought and opinion on this. And then I went to the chair and explained all this. Couldn't 
could not get him to see the, uh, what I was saying. So um, I, I raised it at a I didn't go and start canvassing all directors to say, well, you're on my side and the rest of it. I don't do that stuff. And I just raised it and then bit by bit all the directors came out sort of supporting what I was saying. But, you know, and, and that to me, I'm not saying it's great courage, but it takes some courage to be able to go in there not knowing what the outcome is going to be, knowing you're right and knowing you're going to have to fall on your sword if you can't convince people. Mm. I'm not trying to say I was immensely courageous or anything like that, but what I'm saying is directors need to have that sort of uh, focus and attention to things and to be prepared to stick by something that they deeply know is correct or right uh, rather than to simply go with the flow. And for some people who... Uh, I'm not used to operating in that environment. That can take a lot of courage. Peter, two final questions before we close. I'm so grateful for your time. One of the things I always like to ask our, our guests, and you've touched on a lot of really meaty topics today, you know, vision and purpose, communication. Uh, for those who are sitting here listening to this, going, gee, some of the things that, that Peter's brought up are, are probably areas that I could work on and seek to improve in myself. What's your best advice as to the first step they can take to action that? Um. I think you've got to work out for yourself what your purpose and your own vision is. Um, what are you trying to get out of your life? Um, do you have a five-year plan? Because life is moving so quickly. Um, and if you've got a five-year plan, what does that involve? Um, and if you're going to go down a certain direction, well, then you've, you've all of a sudden got to be you've got to be best in class in that area. Uh, if you're really going to make a big difference. Um, I think people drift. Uh, I think we get um, pushed aside by um, uh, distractions. Um, you know, we're all born with the courageous heart of a lion, but we often act as us. And I think uh, that's simply because we haven't, we haven't set a purpose for what we're trying to achieve. So setting, a, setting yourself a clear vision, having some clear goals, knowing what your five-year plan is, knowing how you are going to actually uh, enrich the world, is what we started talking about this, and then setting it on a, on a thoughtful, measured journey to achieve this. Um, it looks It's an exciting journey. Um, even Bon Jovi, you know, that modern-day philosopher, said, <laughs> map out your future, but do it in... Do it in in pencil because it's going to be an enjoyable ride. I love so, that you just quoted Bon Jovi. That's hilarious. But <laughs> he, he's saying something that I believe. No, I know. And, uh, I love it. And the yeah, final question I wanted to uh, ask you, for those who are listening today, what's the call to action you'd like to leave them with? If you could encourage them to do anything, what would it be? Um, to live a life of meaning. Uh, and and to, to to calculate for themselves, you know what is really precious and valuable in their life. Um, what are the things that really matter, and how can you build on that? Um, and part of that is being part of something bigger than yourself. Um, what are you doing that's bigger than yourself? How can you work with other people or with an organisation? where you're a force multiplier, if you like. Mm. Um, now, that's not always possible. Maybe the, the, you know, the, after a period of self-reflection, and we all need time to think, 
I think that's a starting point for most people. Give yourself time to think, whether it's walking the dog or uh, just whether you're doing laps in a pool or whatever. Use the time to think about these things uh, rather than be distracted by every last sort of thing that's going on in your life. And then once you've, you've thought through what you think you can do to make the biggest difference, to lead a life of purpose um, and enriching both yourself and others, then set your course. Um, but do it in pencil, as Bon Jovi says, because it's going to be an exciting <laughs> <laughs> oh, Peter, you're an absolute gem. I'm just looking at the, the copious notes I've written all over my pages as we've been talking. Yet another wonderful session picking your brain for great wisdom and advice. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing so much from your career and, and also from, the, you know, the lessons that you've learned in, in conversation uh, with other leaders around board tables and on the battlefield. Uh, so deeply appreciated. And I I'm, have no doubt that there are so many that are going to take stock from what you've shared today and use it to enhance their own leadership. So thank you so much. Well, Holly, they don't have to, they don't have to do it the hard way. They don't have to become a, a Jesuit monk and fight in the essays <laughs> to do this. They'll be relieved to hear that, I'm sure. <laughs> don't want to set the bar at a level that people think it's in it most of this stuff everyone can achieve i, I don't want to leave with the impression that uh, that somehow you have to be able to do all those things to get ahead um you don't everyone has the capacity to do this stuff you just got to be mindful enough to do it and and step up your life to lead it value and do the things that are important and don't put it off take action as robin sharma says mm. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback by tweeting me at Holly Ransom or leave a review for the podcast. To cater to coffee length breaks, we've reduced the length of this podcast, but you can listen to this conversation in full and sign up to receive our free fortnightly updates packed with info and ideas by visiting www.coffeepodswithholly.com. So for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me. 